Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. As the country reflects on a gruelling year since the first lockdown was announced by the Prime Minister, calls for a public inquiry grow louder. I'm Jessica Algott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. When I asked you to go into lockdown exactly a year ago, it seemed incredible that in the 21st century, this was the only way to fight a new respiratory disease. On the evening of the 23rd of March 2020, millions in the UK sat in front of their TVs or switched on their radios to hear something they never thought they'd hear. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must Stay at home. Coronavirus was spreading through the country faster than first feared, and ministers had been warned that if they didn't lock down then, the repercussions would be immense. More than 126,000 deaths in the UK later, and the argument continues. Even in the most unprecedented of circumstances, could the government have done any better? According to many, the best way to find out is by holding a public inquiry into how it was all handled. And those calling for it says it should start sooner rather than later. Boris Johnson insists that now is still not the right time. But when is the right time to look at some potentially uncomfortable truths for the government? And while we all look forward to a potential summer without restrictions and chances to see loved ones again, many are looking back at what was one of the most chaotic times in history to be in Westminster. And later on, I catch up with just some of them as they contemplate how things could have gone one year on. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. first. This week, as many of us pause to reflect, we learn that Boris Johnson believes the UK's successful vaccine roll-up was thanks to greed and capitalism. To talk about this and the growing calls for a public inquiry, I'm joined by The Guardian's columnist, Raphael Baer. Raph, but before we get into anything I have to ask about this week, can you tell us, what, do you remember what you were doing this time last year? I mean, you'd, you'd started 2020 on, on a pretty difficult footing anyway, hadn't you? And, and can you remember what it was like watching the Prime Minister give that press conference? Well, I remember very clearly the equivalent day a year ago, because actually I'd just been to a doctor's appointment because I'd had, well, I'd had a heart attack not that long before and I was recovering. And so I just remember asking my consultant cardiologist, you know, like, how how bad is this for me? You know, how how afraid should I be as a cardiac patient of this? 
And I just remember the sort of sharp intake of breath and the kind of weary look on his eyes. And he said, well, we don't really know, but basically, yeah, put it this way, you could do without it. And I thought, yeah, I think that's probably true for all of us, isn't it? And then I more or less got home that day uh, and then we were in lockdown anyway. I thought, well, that takes the decision out of my hands. So I was kind of pretty much going to self-lockdown and now I have no choice. So that's very much the sort of personal lens through which I recall it. Probably you and I were both, uh, I was on maternity leave at the time and, and, and you were recovering from your heart attack. And so we were, I guess in a way we were both watching it unfold as, as, as civilians rather than, than journalists. And what was your, what's your sort of abiding memory of watching how the government dealt with this, this pandemic in the early, early weeks? At the time, I just remember thinking, well, no one knows. And what seems to be the, the, the abiding theme of it was just the sense that you had this prime minister who had taken gone into politics wanting to be a certain type of figure which was light ebullient effervescent person of joy uh, you know that his great hero was Winston Churchill and that he also had this parallel fantasy of himself as the great national leader uh, and would love to have emulated the Churchillian moment in 1940 and we fight them on the beaches and all that sort of stuff and suddenly it's like he has that moment and he's alone on stage and the limelight falls on him and he gets to be that figure and he can't do it. And that exposure of his kind of hollowness and shallowness and sort of being unequal to the scale of the moment, that's the thing that I remember really standing out politically as being in the audience as opposed to sort of in the wings or backstage. You wrote a piece last week about why we need a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. And last July, the Prime Minister did promise, I think in response, in a sort of off, off the cuff response to Ed Davey in the House of Commons of all places, um, said we would have one in the future. And he keeps saying that there will be a time to learn lessons. And it always reminds me of that great tourism about politics that, that you know, now is, is not the time. And then when the time comes, it's, you know, we want to move on, uh, which I'm sure is the way that they'll want to deal with this. Um why Why do you think it's now that is the time? Well, at one level, you've just got to get started because these things take a really long time and they take a while to set up. And actually, there's a lot of organisation and a lot of facts that you've got to start you know, arranging and just picking chairs and all that sort of stuff and deciding who's actually going to run this thing. But also, I just added the piece that I wrote, the emphasis was more driven by concern that what will actually happen is a kind of waters of relief uh, will will wash over the whole experience, again, sort of channeled a little bit by the political will on the part of the government that we all move on uh, and the feeling that wouldn't it be nice if we could just come away with this, with this salient feeling that what happened was there was a terrible accident and nothing, you couldn't do anything about it. It was sort of an act of God. But then the brilliant government came along with its wonderful vaccine programme and we were all released uh, and happy ending, hooray, round of applause all round, now let's move on. And my slight concern is, uh, that will sort of go with a, a cultural grain of just wanting to forget all about it and just move on. And actually, there just are going to be huge lessons that we need to learn and things we need to understand. Literally, there is this huge, as it were, archaeological dig site of very important information you need as a state to understand how we cope or don't cope in these great emergencies. And if that just gets flooded uh, and we move on, then we literally won't be able to learn those lessons. And you have to, you have to wall off the site now and preserve the dig so you get all the evidence. 
It's it's such a it's it's an it's such an incredible task, isn't it? And if you think of how how many corners of of it, it touches when it comes, you know, from the administration of the NHS to test and trace to local councils and how they responded. I mean, it just could be it could be endless if the terms of reference aren't quite aren't quite narrow. Yeah, it's one of these things, isn't it? It's like when you shine a UV light on something, it suddenly shows up things, aspects, contours of the landscape that you can't see in normal kind of spectrum lights. And the pandemic has shone that kind of light on literally every aspect of British society. So if you're not careful, it it turns into an inquiry into the state of UK society, economy, culture and recent history, starting from a moment in early 2020. And that is a very difficult thing to do. The sort of best best guess that many many experts and looking at previous inquiries is that, that, that such an inquiry might last three or four years. If you were a betting man, Raph, when would you say we'll get we'll get one? I think if they end up calling one, the compromise will be, and it won't be made explicit, but the implicit compromise will be fine. You can have a great big inquiry, but let's make sure it delivers its verdict after the next general election. So that whenever it is, it somehow it'll bleed across the line of whenever and the election is due. It has to be at the latest twenty twenty four. I think it'll probably be twenty twenty three. So at some point after that moving away from the future let's let's look at the the present and we had some some quite revealing comments i think from from the prime minister to the 1922 committee of backbench tories uh last night uh ones that he told them to immediately forget uh which they didn't and they leaked to the national press where he said that the uk has been able to vaccinate 28 million people because of quote greed and capitalism my friends why do you think he told his mps to immediately forget that i said that he he he, he but it you know it's revealing isn't it it is revealing i mean it's tricky in a way because part of me responds to this thinking I really don't want to get sucked into another round of psychoanalyzing the prime minister and what he meant it wouldn't it be nice if you just had a prime minister who could just articulate things clearly what he means You're, you're not it's not always a performance you're not always having to try and pick away at a mask or disentangle what's serious and what's done with a sort of ironic knowing wink that in itself is such an irritating frankly feature of the leadership we've currently got so I hate the fact that we have to even play this game but that said I'm going to play it anyway um, because my sense is where this comes from is actually a, a sort of worldview from his generation which actually sees everything in terms of quite a classic left right uh, he's a sort of Thatcher's baby really in some respects politician and so what he means by greed and capitalism did this. It's just a sort of a dig at awful, moany lefties who don't like pharmaceutical companies, don't like the idea of enterprise and buccaneering capitalism and all that sort of stuff. So it's part, in a way, it's almost sort of tying it back to his idea of what uh, a thrusting dynamic Brexit Britain should be all about, which is just is get up and go and we go and achieve things. And so he wants the vaccine programme to be seen and in his head it will be seen as very much as an expression of that. I mean, of course, you can you can very much argue that it's the opposite, can't you? Because it's it's a it's a program that succeeded through through existing the distribution has been through existing state structures and uh, and through the NHS um, funded by the state uh, and and uh, in certainly the AstraZeneca vaccine developed at a public institution. I mean, it, it's you could almost make the exactly the opposite argument. Oh, absolutely, and, and I think probably you know if you asked him to 
articulate exactly what he believes in terms of the relationship between the private sector and the state and developing and innovating vaccines, he would answer it much more in the terms that you just did, that you know, these things are complicated and they work together. But what you get with Boris Johnson is these moments where he cannot keep a lid on his id. It's not great uh, going into today and tomorrow, which is going to be some important days for for vaccine diplomacy, as I guess we can call it, um, where the EU is 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 set to have this 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 summit crunch video summit. I think we've been calling it as well. They may decide to 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 put to slap an export ban on on some of the AstraZeneca vaccines to the UK that are being developed in this plant in the Netherlands. Boris Johnson said yesterday that the UK wouldn't retaliate, but you know clearly it's not a very good situation to be in. How dangerous is this as a precedent, even if, you know, we don't know how exactly it would affect the rollout of the vaccine programme? I think it's very dangerous as a precedent in terms of the future relationship between the UK and the EU. Uh, In practice, my sense from what I hear and understand speaking to people in Brussels and some of the noises you get from Downing Street is there is now a move to take the heat out of this a bit and what will be agreed in Brussels will be a sort of framework that allows them to do something, but they won't activate it immediately. And I think a lot of the EU leaders are sort of trying to rein the commission in a bit on this stuff and say, actually, you know what, let's not have this war now. That would generally be a stupid thing to do. In relative size terms, the UK has to tread a bit carefully on this, that ultimately you do have this situation that has been the case throughout the Brexit negotiations, that when it comes down to it, a block of 27 countries the size of a whole continent can call shots over one lone country that used to be a member. And that's just going to be a problem. It's a problem with vaccines. It's going to be a problem with absolutely everything every time you have one of these issues. The other issue going on with Europe, which I suspect more of the general public will have their eye on this week, is is the, is the concept of, of summer holidays, which look more and more unlikely, don't they, um, given that we're heading for this. Don't say that, Jess. No, no. <laughs> I feel like I resigned myself to this months ago. Uh, although it's, you know, you hear all this stuff, don't you, about, um, oh, let's all enjoy the British seaside. It's like the British seaside is incredibly expensive. All of this stuff is, it's not, it's not an easy choice not to spend your money on, you know, spending a thousand pounds, upward of a thousand pounds on a cottage at the English seaside. But I mean, they, the government would clearly prefer that we do that. Um, we're also facing the possibility of them having to put, European countries in the hotel quarantine system because of the spread of the South African variant, something which will be extremely difficult for the government to, to have to make that choice. Um, do you see more countries going on, on this red list before before it starts e- easing off? I see that pretty much through the lens of a change in the whole governing ethos regarding risk between last summer and this summer. And the, the big change there was... The the response was the Kent variant, basically getting it wrong over Christmas, allowing that easing that had terrible consequences, I think. And they wasted months and months trying to have their cake and eat it on that. And they did, I think, genuinely then change their mind and understand over Christmas and January. And that's why we're still basically in this lockdown. And that's why the easing of the current restrictions is going pretty slowly. I think Boris Johnson has actually fundamentally revised his risk threshold Erring on the side of caution is the ethos right now. And so sadly, I think, yes, that does mean summer holidays are receding from view or summer holidays abroad are slightly receding from view. 
So we uh, we move we go on to next week and we look forward to the next step of the roadmap. Um, finally, to be able to to meet some others, more others in the in the park. Uh, so, Raf, thanks ever so much for joining me. As always, it's a pleasure. Thank you. After the break, we turn back the clock to when the country started to lock down. We'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, this time last year, I was still on maternity leave, and on top of trying to juggle the needs of my tiny son, I was still reeling, like many of you, I'm sure, from the Prime Minister's announcement that, for the foreseeable future, we needed to just stay at home. My little boy wouldn't see his grandparents for a while, and I couldn't meet friends for a coffee or a walk. But I was also getting ready to head back to work in the summer, and I had no idea what Westminster would look like when I got back. For many, the last 12 months have been a blur. But March in particular was a whirlwind month for my colleagues in the lobby and politicians and their advisers. So I gathered up just some of the voices of those who were left scrambling to adapt as the four nations started locking down. And what better place to start than our very own Heather Stewart? As you can imagine, as political editor of The Guardian, you don't have that much time to stop and think about the potential danger of it all. That is, until a health minister tweets that she has tested positive. I think when Nadine Dorries got it, it was one of the moments where we realised that it was around and about in Westminster. And you know what it's like working there. You know, it's not open spaces and lovely ventilation and open windows. It's little kind of dark corners. And it was probably a bit of a Petri dish, to be honest. Um, but also you were, there was this sense of witnessing sort of extraordinary times. So it was odd because it felt as though somehow in your lie in your sort of working life you were sort of living the crisis that was developing across the country and you could at close hand you could see the thinking developing and you could also see the sort of fear mounting really among those in government who were having to make these very very big decisions and I I really vividly remember sitting in the press conference at which Boris Johnson announced that he was closing all the pubs and it was just an extraordinary moment. No prime minister wants to enact measures like this. I know the damage that this disruption is doing and will do to people's lives. To he wouldn't have realised or expected that ever to be something that he was going to have to do in his professional life, you know, as Prime Minister. And, and even days before, let alone weeks before, that was absolutely not something he imagined himself doing. So it was a pretty extraordinary moment. It's not that often you sit in a press conference and, you know, we, we tend to know what to expect, don't we? There, there aren't often sort of jaw-dropping moments, but but that was definitely one of them that I will remember for, for a long time, I think. 
And what was it like when you, after everyone went home, you've got you've got kids who are at home trying to adapt to that new way of working, what must have been just a punishing working environment? Yeah, it was terrible. I was I was just having a look back, actually, at, at the sort of WhatsApp messages that our colleague Rowena and I were sort of firing back at each other in those early days. And of course, a, a, quite a lot of it is about, my goodness, what's the government going to do next? You know, how serious is this? Quite a lot of it is also about how on earth are we going to manage without, you know, juggling our children and to do that while also doing your day job, while also really, you know, like we all were being completely discombobulated by what was going on and how quickly events had kind of overtaken us really was it was just an extraordinary period. And you actually got COVID during that time as well to, to compound all of it. Yeah, I did. I was just looking back to, to remember exactly when it was. And it was so I, so the, the lockdown proper was called on the 23rd, wasn't it? So I was I was at the final Downing Street press conference, which was the Friday before the 20th. Um, and I came down with COVID symptoms on the 29th. So, so um, you know, less than a week after after the lockdown announcement. And, and like lots of people at that time, there were no tests. So you just sort of got on with it, really. And, and you know, took myself off to, off to bed, went went back to work probably too soon, then took myself back off to bed again and, and um, hasn't really left me since, to be honest. Well, it, it did for a while over the summer and there was a period of no symptoms, but I'm, I'm still coming up to a year later and not quite over it. So it's, um, yeah, it was a very odd period to be sort of writing about what was going on kind of living it but also yeah experiencing the symptoms and it was it was at a similar time to to the period where Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock and Chris Whitty were all coming down with it so it, it was I don't know whether I caught it in Westminster but I strongly suspect I did. How do you you view those first few weeks now did you did you ever think at that point that we would still be in a lockdown or that we would have a successful vaccine rollout? I don't think for a moment I thought it would go on for this long. I'm 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 sure that I I think there was already talk of, you know, winter would be difficult, but but I certainly didn't think that a year on we would still be under restrictions. You know, my kids have only just gone back to school. It's 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 really been such a strange period. And you're right, on a vaccine too, at the time I think people were saying, well, a vaccine takes two years at least. So let's let's not be putting our hopes, you know, let's not put our eggs in that basket was the general feeling about it. You know, we've got to manage it through lockdowns and other kind of measures. So you sort of have to stop and think about how extraordinary this mass rollout has been, really, this sort of inoculation of the whole population in a really, really short time is is quite extraordinary isn't it and and no absolutely wouldn't have dreamed that what we were kind of hunkering down for was a sort of year-long kind of kind of siege it's it's really very odd and, and funnily enough there's a <laughs> I was just as I say looking back at my messages from last year and <laughs> I incredibly naively at some very early point sent a message to say well you know I, I think there's a, probably a point at which this becomes more of a health story than a politics story ha 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 um <laughs> Whereas, of course, it's it's absolutely dominated. It's it, it's kind of politics at its most visceral, isn't it? It's it's literally life or death decisions that they're having to make in in Downing Street, and it's you know it's absolutely dominated dominated sort of national life and and all of our lives ever since, hasn't it? One of the people needing to make those life and death decisions was the health secretary Matt Hancock. His former special advisor Jamie Njoku Goodwin started the year giddy with hope after a rollicking win for the Conservatives in the 2019 general election. In the run-up to January, 
we'd had not just months, but actually years of uncertainty, frustrations, roadblocks. Um, ever since 2016, you'd had governments falling and collapsing, leadership elections, uh, parliamentary losses of majorities, then a general election campaign. And the real sense as you went into the new year was, right, we've had five years of madness, but actually this is going to be a calm year. Um, things are going to go back to normality and hopefully we can have some stability in 2020. Bam, out of nowhere, pandemic hits you. I know for lots of people, January was quite a exciting. Um, there was lots going on in that month. Um, it was the month kind of lean up to the UK leaving the European Union. It was a weeks just after an election majority and lots of people sat there thinking, right, what are we going to be doing for the next five years? In the Department for Health, there was definitely a lot of uncertainty and a lot of trepidation about, about what might be to come. Can you describe how it felt when the first case arrived in the UK? I suppose <laughs> terror to an extent, um, because you, you hear stories, you read about pandemics. Everyone know, everyone grows up hearing about the 1918 flu pandemic, hearing about it killing millions of people. Um, we'd spent the last few weeks trying to establish just how deadly this pandemic was, just how, well, just how deadly this virus was, what it really meant. I remember sitting in meetings being told that the latest data from China was indicating that this could be anything between a fatality rate of 0.5% to 4%. Um, it was an incredibly scary time for lots of people. And obviously you're monitoring the response of lots of other countries around the world. At what point do you think you realised in the run-up to, to the lockdown actually being imposed that it was inevitable, that you could try and slow it, but it would be inevitable that we would have to have that kind of lockdown? Lots of people now seem to phrase the decision to lock down as sort of lock down and save lives or don't lock down and lose lives. It was never framed that way at the time. It was never the, That was never the option people were given. At the time, the decision people were being asked to make was do what other countries are doing and lock down or do what you can now to try and um, to try and see if you can ensure your health service survives and your health service capacity is, uh, is not overwhelmed. Throughout the course of this pandemic, what has been quite striking has been every month a different country has been the model to follow. And I'm sure now lots of other countries look at the UK and say, oh, the UK was focused on vaccines when we were focusing on testing. Clearly the UK has done it right. So it's difficult. It's Lots of different countries have had ups and downs throughout this pandemic and trying to work out what the right course is when you're trying to balance scientific advice with what other countries are doing, but also what um, what the evidence and the data is telling you when often those three things are in conflict with each other. It is an incredibly difficult thing for policymakers and politicians to be having to balance and take difficult judgments on. How did people personally deal with the, the stress of those weeks? Lots of people got sick, including the Prime Minister, but how, how did it sort of take its toll? Presumably there were some flared tempers, but probably a bit of comradeship as well. People talk to each other, telling people what's going on and making sure you're supporting each other. It was a real cross-government issue. Um, and so ensuring that everyone was in constant communication, Number 10 knew what was going on, what you were doing. You knew what the steer for Number 10 was. Um, you knew what other departments, different departments needed to be supporting you. Uh, was exceptionally important in those, in those times. And actually, people pulled together incredibly well, I felt. Outside of the Westminster bubble, local councils and city mayors were busy trying to prepare their constituencies. But as the mayor for the Sheffield City region and the Labour MP for Barnsley Central, Dan Jarvis, knows all too well, the pandemic was starting to impact politicians personally. It sounds like a really trivial, selfish point to make. But for years, I'd been drawing together a book which I was going to publish in March. 
and we'd put quite a lot of preparation into a book launch that was taking place in early March. And we were wondering whether this book launch would be able to go ahead because of the emerging threat of COVID. But I also remember having some really deeply worrying early conversations with people in the NHS about the impact that this might have on staffing levels. I remember talking to senior people in the police about their concerns about whether they would be able to put enough police officers on the street. And I don't know, maybe it's a sort of product of my overactive mind or the experiences that I'd had before politics, but quite early on, I was sort of genuinely worried about what this might mean for us and what we might be required to do at a local level in South Yorkshire. How early on were, were officials telling you that the government needed to, to, to be acting? Was it a long time before there was this national lockdown? Yeah, pretty early on. I mean, I think there's sometimes a bit of confusion about what responsibilities mayors have. Right from the outset, all of the mayors, very much on a cross-party basis, decided that we wanted to work very closely with the government. We thought that we had an important role to play. And initially, we had quite constructive conversations with senior people in government about what we might do to support that activity. But over the course of the pandemic, and particularly over the last number of months, I think there's a sense that you know our, our contribution has not been especially appreciated uh, by, by central government. And that's been a sort of source of, of some great frustration to us. Where were you at that moment when the first lockdown was announced, that that stay-at-home moment. Do you remember where you were and how, how you felt? I do. I was at home. I mean, I'd come away from Parliament, um, and I remember very clearly standing on the station at St Pancras, waiting to get on a train to Sheffield. And I stood waiting for this train. And for the first time ever, I honestly didn't know when I would be coming back down to London. And it felt quite a sobering moment. Uh, and I remember watching the Prime Minister and getting a sense from him of, of of the scale of the challenge that we faced as a country. What do you think the legacy is of this pandemic will be for, for the regions and, and, and particularly, you know, Northern England, which the Tories talk about uh, all the time as a, a, in, in their sort of levelling up agenda. But that that is an agenda that's going to be made a lot harder by the economic scars of the pandemic? Well, the, the legacy is there to be shaped. And, and this has been the most dreadful experience for so many people. The North has been, is being levelled down by the economic impact of COVID. And if the government are serious about their levelling up agenda, they need to work with mayors and with local authority leaders and make sure that we've got the resources in place to invest in our communities so that we can recover and rebuild. So what I hope, amongst many other things, the legacy of this pandemic will be is a greater sense of of the need to invest in more deprived communities and actually make sure that people are able to lead healthier and happier lives. And whilst that would obviously be benefit to them as individuals, families and communities, actually there's a wider benefit for the whole country from doing that. And I, I hope that the government will not miss out on that opportunity. MPs often start out as political advisors or working for parties, but some of them come with different life experiences and some even hang on to their other vocations. Rosella Allen-Khan is one of them. The Labour MP for Tooting is an A&E doctor 
who has been able to do something that most of her colleagues haven't, witness the impact of the pandemic from the front lines. So it was really interesting to to be in the NHS at a time that just over a course of weeks became gradually more and more uncertain. We were hearing about this virus. We were told it wasn't anything to worry about. But then before we knew it, it had sort of descended upon us here in the UK. And I think as a you know frontline NHS worker, there were some real concerns and questions about what that would mean. And then it feels as though almost overnight our whole world changed and we were concerned about PPE, um, staff wearing aprons as protective gowns, people concerned that they were going to be taking this virus home to their families, you know, finishing a shift and arriving back home. And instead of, you know, hugging my little kids who would run to the door, I'm screaming at everyone to stand back, stand back, please, while mummy gets changed and has a shower before anyone can touch her. And these were the most atypical of times. And I've been a doctor now for 15 years and I'd never seen anything like what we experienced when when the whole COVID crisis started to hit, to be honest. You weren't just just doing NHS shift. You were, you were actually running to be Labour's deputy leader at the time and you chose to suspend your campaign. T- tell, tell us a little bit about that or at least suspend physical campaigning. Yes, well, I, I was having the most incredible time um, at the start of last year. I'd thrown my hat in the ring. I was enjoying speaking to members. I was travelling, having a, a fantastic time campaigning for for a new future for our party on the back of what had been a really difficult election. But it started to become very clear that people were losing their lives. And for me, I have always maintained that... I'm an ordinary person living a very extraordinary life at the moment in the role that I have, you know, as an MP. But through and through, at my heart, at my core, you know, I'm a doctor. That's the job I always wanted to have. That's how I identify, you know, myself. And when I could see that our communities were really, really struggling, it felt remiss of me to continue campaigning for my deputy leadership campaign when I felt my time would be better served going and doing more shifts than I ever had on the front line. You must have felt, you know, previously in your career, a bit a bit torn between politics and, and medicine. And did this kind of exacerbate the way that you've you felt about, you know, your decision to go into politics versus staying more wholly in medicine? Because it sounds like from what you're saying that uh, that you felt like you needed to leave the political campaigning behind for a while and really focus on making what you thought could make the most difference at that particular moment, which was treating patients? I've never felt a tension actually between my medical role and my political role, because I think they really go hand in hand. I mean, I'm really, really grateful that that I'm an A&E specialist. That's my specialty. And when you work in A&E, the waiting room is like a microcosm of wider society. So I actually use what I see at work, who I meet at work to inform my politics. And I think it goes really well hand in hand. I spent years wanting to be a doctor and being told I couldn't. You know, I I failed my A-levels because things were really tough at home and I only went to medical school at 24. And so I worked so hard to have this role and I'm so honoured to be a doctor that for me, it just felt this. I just had this innate feeling that I just wanted to go to the hospital. That's what I wanted to do. And that's where my body was going to take me, as it were. 
Remembering what it was like in Westminster the week the first lockdown was announced is one thing. But when I asked Jamie, Dan and Rosanna if there were any moments from this first year of the pandemic that will stick with them forever, it's not necessarily the lockdown announcements that come to mind. For Dan Jarvis, it's when COVID-19 truly hit home. Well, I haven't spoken about this previously, but the truth of the matter is that the moment that will stay with me, it's the moment that I found out that my grandmother had died in a care home. We hadn't been able to go and visit her because of the restrictions placed on on the care home. And therefore, as a family, we never had the opportunity to say goodbye to her. And that is heart-wrenching for us. But that is an experience that so many people shared around the country. So I think we will all have our memories. This has been the most dreadfully difficult time for us to get through. And I hope that we can find it within ourselves to meet the challenge of the moment. And I'll certainly be doing what I can to make sure that we do. For Jamie Nujaku Goodwin, it was feeling the weight of the nation's safety on his shoulders and not really knowing what the answers were. The day of case one, um, that I kind of got the call at about half past midnight when that first case came in and then walking into work, seeing all these people walking around, not knowing and thinking case one's here. And now you have thousands and thousands and thousands of cases a day with people sort of not batting an eyelid sometimes. But the first case, um, the first tragic death, but I think from the start, the sense was that a vaccine is going to be the ultimate way out. And you're saying, what can we do to get a vaccine through? And the answer is, it's not going to be here for a year at the very least. And thinking, how do we get through the next year before you've got a vaccine? And obviously part of that is saying, right, what can we be doing now to ensure that a vaccine can come as soon as possible? And when it does, it can be rolled out as effectively and seamlessly and as successfully as possible. But also the question of, before it gets here, what could we be doing to protect lives, protect the NHS um, and ensure you have as good a response as you possibly can do? So I think there's lots of there's lots of moments that you think back to as big moments and serious moments, but often you don't realise quite how seminal and important they were until you look back on it and see the, see the journey and the route we've come through. And for Rosanna Alin Khan, it had nothing to do with politics in the end. I remember facilitating Zoom calls between family members and their loved ones who were ventilated in the intensive care so that they could hear their voice. And I took this iPad to this lady who was very, very young. She was under 30 and she had delivered a baby while unconscious in the intensive care. And her family came on the call. There were three children under six and I stood there speaking to them And then they spoke to their mum and they shouted, mummy, mummy, wake up. You've been gone too long. We miss you. We love you. And I told them that their mummy could feel their love and she could hear their love and that their call really made a difference to her. But I was crying under my PPE, what that felt like and the drive it gave me to take these patients' messages forward because we have to learn from this pandemic And we have to do better. We have to do better. We have had over 125,000 people die. We have lost loved ones. People are grieving. And so many of these lives lost, I truly believe, could have been avoided. And we have to do better. We simply have to do better. A huge thanks to Rosanna Alincarn, Dan Jarvis, 
Jamie Njoku Goodwin, and of course our very own Heather Stewart for talking to me for that report. I actually wrote a very long read a couple of weeks ago about what it was like to be in Westminster as COVID started spreading through those old hallowed corridors. There will be a link to it in today's episode description on the Guardian website. But that's all from us this week. For anyone wanting to stick with the lockdown anniversary theme, in Tuesday's episode of our sister podcast, Science Weekly, Ian Sample spoke to various scientific experts about COVID treatments, vaccines, and what the next 12 months might hold. Just search for Science Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.